everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and we've got a new show for you this week, a big new show. We've got a lot of things to cover this week. We had a couple of great interviews this past couple of weeks with Corey Doctorow, always fun. And we've got another really good one coming up next week. Uh, but between those two, we've got a lot to cover. I've got a lot of things to talk about today. First of all, we'll talk about some Windows 10 update bugs, some really pretty bad ones. But unfortunately, we're st- <laughs> we still need to update. We'll talk more about that. Then we'll talk about how a leaked document shows how uh, big companies are selling our, buying and selling our credit card data. We'll talk about how maybe up to a billion different Wi-Fi-enabled devices may be suffering from a nasty bug. And uh, while some could be updated, many probably never will. Then we'll talk about briefly about the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, and how they are planning to levy up to a $200 million fine against the big four cellular carriers here in the United States for selling your data. And then the big story of the week uh, will be Clearview again. This was the big story a few weeks back when the New York Times broke the story about how this really small company has been amassing upwards of 3 billion facial photos from various social media outlets on the web, all of our photos, basically, and then has turned that into a facial recognition system, supposedly for law enforcement agencies in the United States and Canada, to allow them to basically snap a picture of somebody. Maybe it's from a, a surveillance camera. Maybe it's just from a telephoto lens. Maybe it's just a random picture with their phone uh, and use that face to basically figure out who you are. And while they said that this was mostly for law enforcement agencies in the U.S. and Canada, there has been a breach of Clearview that has revealed their client list. And it's uh, not really what they said it was going to be. That's kind of be, that'll be our big, um, our big story for today. And then we'll end up with uh, a web browser roundup where I've got a little bit of news articles on a few different browsers, including a new one that I haven't talked about much. And that will lead into our tip or tips of the week. A couple more things before we get started. Uh, It is tax filing season. And a few episodes ago, we talked with Justin Elliott, who is a reporter with ProPublica, on why it's so hard to find those free versions, the truly free versions of the online tax filing software. So uh, just in case you missed that episode, you might want to go check it out. Or if you don't want to, for some reason, go to the podcast version, which I think is very interesting, you can just go and get the information off my website, firewallsdonstopdragons.com. There's an article there if you just search on taxes. All right, but we've got a lot to cover today, so let's jump into the news. All right, first up, Windows 10 is the current operating system for Microsoft. Uh, the one on basically most of the PCs around the planet, though, of course, a lot of them are still running Windows 7, which, by the way, has been uh, Microsoft has ended official support for. So if you're still on Windows 7, you really need to seriously consider moving up to Windows 10. And you can still do that for free legitimately, by the way. If you go to my website, uh, again, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, uh, and search on Windows 10, you'll find the article that will tell you how to do it. But... <laughs> Uh, there's been some real issues lately with Microsoft. Actually, Apple, too. There's Both both Apple and, and uh, Microsoft have had some real issues with their major upgrades lately. And it's... I don't know what to attribute that to. Maybe just lack of testing or going too fast? Or uh, I don't... I mean, these are extremely complicated things. And they keep adding more and more features. So, you know, they're, maybe they're just kind of collapsing under their own weight. But anyway, I just want to read a, a brief snippet here from this article from Forbes about uh, these issues that are being that they're being seen and maybe what you can do about it. So again, from Forbes, are you booting up your Windows 10 machine and discovering you can't log into your profile? It appears that you're not alone. Reports are increasing across Twitter and Microsoft forums that following the most recent Patch Tuesday update, and it's a, <laughs> these are horrible numbers you can never remember as a human. Uh, they're called, they're knowledge base articles or KBs. So uh, the Patch Tuesday update, which is a, 
the software update had this, I don't know why it's a knowledge base number, but the knowledge base, 4532693, you know, that one. Anyway, uh, back to the article. Uh, users are complaining that their profiles and desktop files are missing and that custom icons and wallpaper have all been reset to their default state. The post below encapsulates the struggle many Windows 10 users are experiencing following the latest cumulative update. And this is a quote. It says, Every time my PC updates, my desktop wallpaper goes back to the default, and all saved icons, favorites, passwords, etc. are gone. Every single time. This is getting tiring, and I'm losing so much time at work saving my icons again, passwords, etc. What is going on? It's almost as if the computer is set back to the default every after every update. Please help. I've tried quite a few things to fix it, and no luck. So back to the article says, what's going on here? Is your profile deleted? Is your personal desktop and profile data actually toast? Unfortunately, the the answer seems to be, it depends. This user on Microsoft Answers community may have discovered what's happening, writing that their files, quote, had all moved on to another folder in the C drive ending in dot zero zero zero, unquote. In this case, the latest update is forcing you to log into a temporary profile and your profile data has been renamed. Now, the the article goes on with some very detailed uh, descriptions of what you might do if you run into this problem. I'm not going to go into all those here. But just know that if you're having some really weird problems after this latest Windows 10 update, there are some potential solutions out there. Unfortunately, some of them uh, still may not work. There was one person I know that had said that uh, the update actually completely removed their data. It was gone and completely unrecoverable. So I know, I know, I always tell you guys you need to stay up to date. And you do, trust me. For security purposes, you need to do that. But... the the only maybe caveat I have, the, the only qualification I might give to that recommendation is when there are major updates, and Windows is doing it about twice a year and Apple's doing it about once a year. When there are major, major updates that, you know, that include lots of new features and whatever, I usually wait about a week uh, before I take that upgrade. And I've got automatic up- upgrades set, but I think even on Apple, it won't do the major upgrades, like from, you know, 10.14 to 10.15. Because right now, all of uh, macOS versions start with 10, macOS 10. Um, so the major upgrades are that second decimal value. Even with automatic upgrades turned on, uh, it will ask you before it does that big of an update. So I usually wait at least a week uh, on those really major updates to, just to make sure that you know there aren't major problems like these where I might want to wait for an updated update. <laughs> But, you know, when it comes to the the smaller point releases, like, you know, let's say 10.14.1 to 10.14.2 for macOS, uh, or some of the similar, you know, patch Tuesday updates from Microsoft that come out on the second Tuesday of the month, uh, those are very often security updates and fixing bugs. And I would definitely be taking those pretty much as soon as they come out. And in fact, if, you've, uh, if you're Windows 10 Home right now and you did the free upgrade, I, I don't even think you have an option there. I think you have to take them. All right, lots more to cover. Let's keep going. Um, so Vice.com has an article about a leaked document that shows how companies buy and sell credit card information on you. So let me just dive into this article. It says, and the very first word is the name of the company. It's Y-O-D-L-E-E. I'm going to say that's Yodley. I don't, maybe it's Yodley. I don't know, but I'm going to say it's Yodley. Yodley, the largest financial data broker in the U.S., sells data pulled from the bank and credit card transactions of tens of millions of Americans to invest in research to investment in research firms, detailing when and where people shopped and how much they spent. The company claims the data is anonymous, but a confidential Yodley document obtained by Motherboard, which is um, the company that owns Vice or vice versa, indicates individual users could be unmasked. 
The findings come as multiple senators have urged the Federal Trade Commission, FTC, to investigate InvestNet, who owns Yodley, for selling Americans transaction, transaction information without their knowledge or consent, potentially violating the law. And I'll actually I'll stop here. I, this was a really long article, and I've uh, just cut out snippets in, uh, of this, so there may be a couple disjoint ideas in here because of the way I had to divvy this up. But um, it was a really it was a really long article, so I tried to spare you some of that and just get the the meat of the stuff. So uh, back to the article, it says the Yodley document describes in detail what type of data its clients gain access to, how the company manages that data across its infrastructure, and the specific measures Yodley takes to try and anonymize its data set. The transaction data itself comes from banks, credit card companies, and apps that Yodley works with, including Bank of America, Citigroup, and HSBC, according to a previous report from the Wall Street Journal. According to the 2019 document Motherboard obtained, the data includes a unique identifier given to the bank or credit card holder who made the purchase, the amount spent for the transaction, the date of the sale, the city, state, and zip code of the business the person bought from, and other pieces of metadata. Once logged into Yodley's server, clients download the data as a large text file rather than interacting with the data in a dashboard or an interface, interface that stays solely within Yodley's control, according to the document. Yodley's data cleaning involves removing names, email addresses, and other personally identifiable information, or PII, from the transaction data, according to the Yodley document. That includes masking patterns of numbers like account numbers, phone numbers, and social security numbers and replacing them with big capital X symbols. But that cleaning process still leaves a wealth of data available to clients and could allow people included in the Yodley data set to be unmasked, according to several experts who reviewed the relevant section of the Yodley document. And here's uh, one of several quotes. Uh, this one guy's from Yves, Yves Alexandre de Montoya. Uh, and he says, quote, It's hard to say without the full context, but from the description, the data itself seems to me to be pseudonymized. And that's a, probably a word you've never heard. It's like pseudonym uh, or, or pseudo something when someone says it's like, kind of like something pseudonymized. That's actually a, a specific term in privacy world for uh, how data can be it's different than anonymized or de-identified. I know those all kind of sound the same, but anyway, so it's not terribly important at this point. The, the idea being that, that they're trying to take this data that has very personal information about it and make it so that someone else looking at it can't figure out who those people are. Back to the quote, it says, however, someone with access to the data set and some information about you, e.g. shops you've been buying from and when might be able to identify you, unquote. Uh, this researcher, along with another guy, previously did some work in a 2015 study where researchers successfully identified real people in an ostensibly anonymized data set of three months' worth of credit card and transactions covering 1.1 million people. And they did it using what they call spatiotemporal uh, information. Back to the article, uh, those spatiotemporal traces are the various pieces of metadata that the document shows are included with the transaction, the date, the merchant, the physical location of the sale, and more. Quoting again, if an attacker got hold of the spatiotemporal coordinates for just three to four randomly picked transactions in the data set, then the attacker can unmask the person with a very high probability. With this unmasking, the attacker would have access to all the transactions made by that individual, unquote. Someone buying this data might not even need that many uh, if they can already identify one transaction belonging to a specific person. Nick Weaver from UC Berkeley, who I've interviewed twice, uh, added that an attacker may only require, quote, one link to de-anonymize a group of transactions belonging to a user, unquote. If someone knows a particular purchase of a target that they ordered from a specific merchant on a particular day, for instance, because Yodley preserves unique identifiers for each consumer across transactions, someone with the data set could then potentially see that person's other transaction as well. 
In a letter to the FTC, Senator Ron Wyden, Senator Sherrod Brown, and Representative Anna Eshoo, uh, Eshoo wrote that, quote, the consumer data that InvestNet collects and sells is highly sensitive. Consumers' credit and debit card transactions can reveal information about their health, sexuality, religion, political views, and many other personal details, unquote. And Senator Wyden said in a statement, quote, data brokers love to claim that making user data anonymous will protect Americans' privacy. Here's a shocker. It won't. Data can't always be anonymized. Computer scientists have repeatedly demonstrated that poorly anonymized data can be re-identified. Companies need to go much further to demonstrate that they have truly addressed the privacy risks associated with the data they collect and sell, unquote. Yeah, so that's really what I was want to get at with this thing is this data... Just the fact that it's collected at all and is, is a liability, uh, though a lot of people view it as um, valuable and, and sell it as such. But there are many, many different companies getting many, many different sets of data. And just because one set of data may be fairly well uh, pseudonymized or anonymized, if you combine that with data from somebody else, uh, for instance, just like this guy was saying, if, if, you, if I could find just one transaction of, of, in this list where I knew who made that transaction, that unique identifier is associated with every other transaction in this database. So now I know everything that person bought. And things like location. We talked about this before too, where uh, if, if you know just two or three locations of somebody throughout their uh, day during the week, like maybe where they are first thing in the morning, that's probably their home. Where they are in the middle of the day, that's probably work. And perhaps some other things in between, like, you know, the school that they drop their kids off from and pick them up from, maybe the grocery store that's right up at the corner that they always used. Again, that would be a, a point where you might be able to de-anonymize some of this data if you cross-referenced it with something else. There are a lot of very clever and actually not that difficult ways that you can combine this data and come out with de-anonymized data. So again, it's just it's just a wild, wild west out there, and we've got to put some rules on this, or it's, I mean, it's already gone crazy. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna have to walk some of this stuff back at this point. And uh, it's not going to be pretty, but it, it's got to be done or it's it's just going to explode. I mean, we've already had some some big articles and some big scandals, but it, this is just the tip of the iceberg, folks. All right. You've heard me say that before. So moving on. A company called uh, a cybersecurity firm called ESET, who we've talked about before. That's all caps E-S-E-T, uh, has discovered a security flaw in Wi-Fi devices that could affect up to a billion of them. This is an article from uh, technologyreview.com. Uh, let me just read a little bit of this and you'll get the idea. More than a billion internet-connected devices, including Apple's iPhone and Amazon's Echo, and I assume Android phones, are affected by a security vulnerability that would allow hackers to spy on traffic sent over Wi-Fi. The flaw, discovered by the cybersecurity firm ESET, effectively disarms the encryption used by a password-protected Wi-Fi network. This could let hackers watch the activity on the network as if it were wide open. But while this means victims are vulnerable to eavesdropping, software updates and other layers of security will likely prevent this attack from having catastrophic results. And I'm going to come back to that when we're done with the article. The vulnerability, dubbed Crook, that's K-R-0-0-K, by researchers, affects devices with Wi-Fi chips by Broadcom and Cypress, used in a vast range of devices with wireless internet, including Apple, Google, and Samsung phones. But security updates have already been deployed to fix the issue, so the best advice is to make sure your computers, phones, and all internet-connected devices have the latest software and firmware. In a worst-case scenario, a significant amount of data would be exposed, including the websites you're visiting or messages you are sending. However, a lot of private communication on your Wi-Fi network should still be safe because of the encryption used by the websites themselves. So stay calm, salute the folks finding these problems, and carry on. So they're right. This is not quite as bad as it sounds, but they also missed something that I think is crucial here. So 
in a nutshell, what this means is the devices with these special chips built in, these Wi-Fi chips built in to allow the device to talk to the Wi-Fi network, made by Broadcom and Cypress, who are very, very popular. These chips are in a lot of different devices, had a serious bug. Now, all the really fancy devices like smartphones, computers, and, and even Amazon Echoes and things that have these chips built in are capable of getting software updates. However, so many of our Internet of Things devices that probably have these chips too are either not upgradable at all or take some sort of weird manual intervention for you to upgrade, which is not easy and most people will probably never do. So that comes back to the original point with basically what this is saying. If there's any any device on your Wi-Fi network, any one of them, and I've got dozens. You probably don't, but I do. And if any one of these devices is compromisable, then it can compromise the security of every device talking Wi-Fi in your network. Now, again, there's two mitigations that they did mention that are important. One is that they would need to be within Wi-Fi range. They're not going to be doing this from some other country or even some other county. They need to be pretty much parked outside your house or a neighbor or a, if you're an apartment, then, you know, you might have a lot of these. And the other thing is, as far as like, you know, eavesdropping on communications and things goes, yes, much of our internet traffic and much of our uh, internet connections these days are over SSL. Like when you go to HTTPS, that S is for security. And that means it's using uh, what we call SSL, secure, secure socket layer. Uh, but SSL is, a, is basically the fancy word for it's encrypted. So even if they can, you know, even if the like the general network traffic on your Wi-Fi router is decrypted, if the individual connections over that network are still encrypted, they still can't see it. But there's still a lot of stuff they could do. Um, so this is a really bad bug. And I'll go back to my advice again. If you've got some of these really cool, snazzy Internet of Things devices in your house, first of all, put them on the guest network. Uh, most of these devices only need to talk to the Internet. Now, some of them you need to, you know, to control them, you need to talk to them with your phone uh, or your computer, which means they need to be on the same network sometimes. But uh, try them on your guest network first and see if you can get that to work. At least that will keep them isolated from your uh, juicier devices like your smartphones and computers. But if you've got IoT devices that, that you cannot figure out how to upgrade their software and you can determine that they don't upgrade themselves automatically you probably want to consider just getting rid of those and replacing them with something that does. All right, moving on. Um, the FCC had just announced that it plans to fine AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, and T-Mobile $200 million total across all four for selling your customer location data. And I almost didn't, I almost didn't even talk about this article because all this is is a plan for them to do it. And there's been many cases where they've planned to do X and then ended up doing a lot less than X, or in some cases, don't do anything at all. But it's in the news. I'll talk about it here briefly and just read a little snippet here from appleinsider.com. It says, the U.S. Federal Communications Commission on Friday proposed fines against the nation's largest cellular carriers for selling access to real-time consumer geolocation data to third-party aggregators. In total, the FCC proposes AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, and T-Mobile be slapped with more than $200 million in penalties for, quote-unquote, apparently disclosing user location information to third parties uh, without customer authorization. I don't know why it says apparently. It's pretty obvious they did. Um, T-Mobile faces the highest penalty with a proposed fine of more than $91 million. AT&T and Verizon face proposed fines of more than $57 million and $48 million, respectively, while Sprint faces a proposed fine of more than $12 million. 
The data selling practices were unearthed in a series of reports in 2018. Each of the four telecoms were found to sell uh, access to location information to aggregators who in turn sold that data to law enforcement agencies, bounty hunters, tracking services, and alleged stalkers, among others. Verizon promised to end its data selling program in November 2018, a move followed by AT&T, T-Mobile, and Sprint in 2019. A subsequent drawdown took months, with, car- with all carriers cutting off the tap to aggregators in May of 2019. Okay, so anyway, that's just an update, just to let, let you know that that whole thing is proceeding, and just to remind you <laughs> that, uh, you know, I've often said that if you uh, if the product is free, then you're the product, but there's <laughs> that doesn't always apply. There's a lot of companies that are double-dipping as well, charging you ridiculous amounts of money for their service, and out the back door selling your data to get, make even more money. And hopefully, uh, you know, things like this will help to curb some of these abuses, but honestly, those kind of fines, even though they sound big, probably really aren't that big to those carriers. All right, now time for the big story of the week. And this is uh, this was originally a really long article. And I've again, I've tried to kind of come up with an abridged version that covers the highlights, but yet there's still a lot to go through here. But BuzzFeed News broke this story last week, if you're getting this on Monday. And somehow, well, it was it was reported that Clearview was hacked. This is the, the company Clearview AI, which we talked about a while ago. And, and this article will summarize a little bit of what they've done. Um gathering all these photos of people and and then selling access to supposedly to law enforcement agencies to help them, you know, purportedly find criminals, uh, which bypasses, by the way, some restrictions that the government had placed on such practices. In other words, that the law enforcement agencies themselves uh, weren't allowed to do these kind of things. But since another third party is doing it, apparently the loophole there was it didn't prevent them from just buying it from somebody else. Well, it turns out this company was hacked, and somebody got a hold of their client list, and it's a little broader than what they were, well, it's a lot broader than what they claimed uh, in the interviews that they were giving. And apparently BuzzFeed News got a hold of it. So uh, I'm going to read extensively, but only partially, from a long article from BuzzFeed News. And uh, if you're really interested, of course, you should just go to buzzfeednews.com and read the whole thing yourself. And I'll put a link to this in the show notes. But this is important, and this Facial recognition technology, the opportunities for abuse are huge. Uh, this is just one example. And again, this is why we need regulation around this. All right, so let me dive into this article. The United States' main immigration enforcement agency, the Department of Justice, retailers including Best Buy and Macy's, and a sovereign wealth fund in the United Arab Emirates are among the thousands of government agencies and private businesses around the world listed as clients of the controversial facial recognition startup with a database of billions of photos scraped from social media and the web. The startup, Clearview AI, is facing legal threats from Facebook, Google, and Twitter, as well as calls for regulation and scrutiny in the U.S., but new documents reviewed by BuzzFeed News reveal that it has already shared and sold its technology to thousands of organizations around the world. In its quest to create a global biometric identification system to span both public and private sectors, Clearview has signed paid contracts with the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, or ICE, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, SDNY, and Macy's, according to the document obtained by BuzzFeed News. The company has credentialed users at the FBI, Customs and Border Protection, CBP, Interpol, and hundreds of local police departments. In doing so, Clearview has taken a flood-the-zone approach to seeking out new clients, providing access not just to organizations, but to individuals within those organizations, sometimes with little or no oversight or awareness from their own management. Clearview's software, which claims to match photos of persons of interest to online images culled from millions of sites, have been used by people in more than 2,200 law enforcement departments, government agencies, and companies across 27 countries, according to the documents. 
This data provides the most complete picture to date of who has used the controversial technology and reveals what some observers have previously feared. Clearview's AI facial recognition has been deployed at every level of American society and is making its way around the world. The New York-based startup has claimed its controversial technology is intended as a tool for police and that it was prioritizing business in North America. Quote, it's strictly for law enforcement, unquote. Clearview CEO Mr. T said on the Fox Business News earlier this month, he noted in a February 5th statement to BuzzFeed News that his company was, quote, focused on doing business in USA and Canada, unquote. But in reality, Clearview AI has also been aggressively pursuing clients in industries such as law, retail, banking, and gaming, and pushing into international markers in markets in Europe, South America, Asia Pacific, and the Middle East. According to documents reviewed by BuzzFeed News, people associated with 2,228 law enforcement agencies, companies, and institutions have created accounts and collectively performed nearly 500,000 searches, all of them tracked and logged by the company. While some of these entities have formal contracts with Clearview, many do not. A majority of Clearview's clients are using the tool via free trials, most of which last 30 days. In some cases, when BuzzFeed News reached out to organizations from the documents, officials at a number of these places initially had no idea their employees were using the software or denied ever trying the facial recognition tool. Some of those people later admitted that Clearview accounts did exist within their organizations after follow-up questions from BuzzFeed News led them to query their workers. Uh, and here's a quote from somebody named Claire Garvey, uh, who's a senior associate at the Center on Privacy and Technology in Georgetown Law, uh, who I'd love, I've been trying to get some people from that department on the show for a long time now. So if anybody knows any, let me uh, reach out to me. Anyway, the quote is, this is completely crazy. Here's why it's concerning to me. There is no clear line between who has permitted access to this incredibly powerful and incredibly risky tool and who doesn't have access. There's not a clear line between law enforcement and non-law enforcement, unquote. There are currently no federal laws regulating the use of facial recognition, though several elected officials have proposed bills. States, including Illinois, have developed regulations on the corporate use of biometric data, and some cities have outright banned the technology. In that regulatory vacuum, Clearview has thrived, doling out free trials seemingly at will and encouraging law enforcement officers and officials to invite their colleagues and perform as many searches as possible. Clearview CEO Mr. T has been coy about his company's relationships with the federal government, and documents reviewed by BuzzFeed News suggest his startup has deeply penetrated multiple departments and agencies there. Among them is the Department of Homeland Security, where employees at CBP, the country's main border security organization, are listed in the documents as having registered nearly 280 accounts. In total, those accounts have run almost 7,500 searches, the most of any federal agencies that, that did not have some type of paid relationship. A spokesperson for the CBP said Clearview was not used for the agency's biometric entry-exit programs and declined further comment. Clearview's propensity to hand out free trials to officers using police department or government email addresses has sometimes caused situations in which law enforcement agencies appear to have no idea the tools being used by their employees. While the nation's largest police department, the NYPD, previously denied it had any formal relationship with Clearview, the document shows that officers there have run more than 11,000 searches, the most of any entity on the document. More than 30 officers have Clearview accounts, according to the logs. An NYPD spokesperson told BuzzFeed News that while it does not have any contract or agreement with Clearview, its, quote, established practices did not authorize the use of services such as Clearview AI, nor did they specifically prohibit it, unquote. And the NYPD spokesman goes on to say, quote, technology developments are happening rapidly and law enforcement works to keep up with the technology in real time. We are in the process of using the NYPD's policy on facial recognition practices to address emerging issues, unquote. 
Garvey said that these rogue uses of facial recognition are very concerning and that the public has no way of knowing whether all the searches served a law enforcement purpose. Quote, not only are these officers operating completely outside of the established outside procedures set up by the NYPD to run these facial recognition services, but they're vastly expanding the type of cases in which facial recognition is actually being applied, unquote. When BuzzFeed News reported earlier this month that Clearview AI had used marketing materials that suggested that it was pursuing a, quote-unquote, rapid international expansion, the company was dismissive, noting that, that it was focused on the U.S. and Canada. The company's client list suggests otherwise. It shows that Clearview AI has expanded to at least 26 countries outside the U.S., engaging national law enforcement agencies, government bodies, and police forces in Australia, Belgium, Brazil, Canada, Denmark, Finland, France, Ireland, India, Italy, Latvia, Lithuania, Malta, the Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, Serbia, Slovenia, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom. You can see that this is you know, this is getting out of hand, and, this, and these guys, actually what they're doing is probably completely legal. Now, you know, Facebook and Twitter and those, and Google and, uh, you know, have been really you know, at least publicly mad at Clearview AI for scraping all the images from their services. But Clearview AI has a point. I mean, they're basically saying all these images were publicly available. They didn't hack anything. They didn't break into any databases. All these pictures were just out there. These are people's Facebook pages, their Twitter profiles, their, their, you know, their Google Hangouts or whatever, you know, what are all the various social things that Google has, their Google profiles. And the the article went on and on and on about all sorts of various government and uh, non-government agencies and, you know, retailers and other companies that are using this as well. So if that, you know, if that that's just a taste. I skipped a lot of that, a lot of that detail. But who knows what they're using it for? I mean, they could be using to profile customers as they come in, you know, to maybe are they, you know, are they at risk for shoplifting, et cetera, et cetera. All, this, it could be abused in so many different ways. And again, with all these personal accounts with 30-day free trials, who knows what these people are actually doing with this? All they really needed to, to get the account, apparently, at the trial was to have some sort of an email address that corresponded to a government agency or a law enforcement agency. So if you have the opportunity, you might want to reach out to your representatives, mention articles like this, and say that we really need to put some sort of a cap on the use of this technology and perhaps even a moratorium until we can really come to grips with all the implications this has. But the flip side of that is, if we even if we ban it here, and it's probably banned under GDPR in Europe, you know, what... There's nothing that says Clearview can't just relocate to some other country that has lax laws and just keep doing the same thing. So the other thing we need to do is stop being so, stop oversharing our information with the public. You know, so on Facebook and all these other things, if you, you know, restrict access to most of your stuff to only friends and family, or, you know, of course you can just quit Facebook. Though you'd also have to delete all your data because even when you quit Facebook, I think your account stays around unless you explicitly tell them to delete it. And of course, that still doesn't stop all your friends and family and everybody who knows you from taking pictures of you putting on their websites, on their Facebook pages, and tagging you with your name, which would have the same effect. It's it's really hard to put this genie back in the bottle. All right, so let's let's end on some upbeat news. We did the bad news first. We'll do the good news last. And I've got a few different news stories to talk about here related to three different browsers. So the first one is about Google Chrome. And of course, this is the one that I recommend that you do not use, but it's the one that's used by most people on the planet. I think like 60 or 70% of browser use around the, around the world is, is Google Chrome now. Well, they just patched three major security flaws. Uh, and I'll just read very briefly from this article that tells you what to do. I mean, Chrome should be updating itself, but here's how you can verify that these bugs have been fixed. Because if not, your your browser 
uh, could very well be compromised, meaning that your computer could be compromised as well. So you want to make sure that you're up to date. So from this article from Lifehacker, it says, there's not one, but three big old security bugs in the latest versions of Chrome, one of which is being actively exploited by hackers. You can read the technical details of the bug in the Google blog post, but it basically affects Chrome's ability to properly check and run JavaScript, leaving the browser open to malicious code. Google hasn't said exactly how the attacks are being carried out, but the company has confirmed that the vulnerability is being used to target users, so you'll want to patch Chrome as soon as possible. Here's the bad news. Only the Windows, Mac, and Linux versions of Chrome have been updated so far. Android, iOS, and Chromebook users will have to wait for their patches. And as of this taping, I have not heard that they are available. Uh, continuing, it's pretty easy to see if there's a Google update available. The menu icon in the upper right corner, the one next to your Google profile icon, will have a notification dot. Click the icon and then click Update Chrome to install the patch. You can confirm that you're already safe by checking your browser version. Click the three-dot menu icon, go to the Settings, and then About Chrome, and look for the version. The bugs are patched on version 80.0-3987.122 or higher. If Chrome is not up to date and there are no update notifications over the menu icon, that might mean that Chrome hasn't fully finished updating. But fear not, the About Chrome screen will also let you know if there's an update waiting to be installed, and will ask you to relaunch the browser to complete it. If you've checked all these options and you're still not up to date, you can also try downloading and installing the latest version of Chrome manually. So again, my as we kind of go into some multiple tips of the week, my first tip of the week is not to use Chrome, which I have said on multiple occasions. And this just gives you one more reason not to. Now, that said, you know, browsers are going to have bugs. So I'm not going to you know say Chrome is worse or or more shoddy than any other ones. But for privacy reasons alone, you know, if you if you're not liking Chrome or if this is, you know, bothering you, then this is just one more excuse for you to switch to something like Firefox. And that leads to the next little story here, and that is that Mozilla, the the maker of Firefox, has enabled DNS over HTTPS or DOH uh, by default for all of its uh, US users. And we talked about this a long time ago. And I'll just briefly say that DNS, again, is like kind of like the phone book for the internet. So if I want to call somebody and I know their name and where they live, I look up in the phone book, which we don't have anymore. But in the old days, you would you'd get the paper phone book, you would look up their name, and if you knew kind of their address or roughly where they lived, you could find their phone number and then call them. DNS is kind of the same thing. On the internet, the way things are really routed is based on IP address, but that's not what we type into our browsers. We type in Amazon.com and Yahoo.com and Apple.com. And so DNS is what converts that host name to an IP address. Unfortunately, by default, your DNS queries are not encrypted. And most of them also by default go to your internet service provider. And your internet service provider then basically knows everywhere you go and when you went. Every address you basically looked up, and of course you didn't realize maybe this was happening in the background, but every time you put an address or click the link on your web browser, it has to go to DNS to say, okay, where do I really send this? Tell me what the IP address is associated with this uh, host name. And again, this basically means that your internet service provider or whoever your DNS provider is knows all the websites you're going to and when you went there and how often. So one solution to that is to encrypt the DNS traffic. The second part of that solution is to send that DNS query to somebody who is not going to save that information and sell it. And so, uh, while Mozilla and Firefox has made this possibility, it was a box that you could go find and check to turn this on. And I'll tell you how to do that here in a minute. They were now rolling it out so that all new customers will get this enabled by default. Now, if you're already a customer, 
the update will not turn this on for you. You're still going to have to go turn it on if you haven't already. And again, I'll get to that in just a minute. But that brings me to the third little web browser update, and that's about a browser I don't talk about very often. And it's kind of a newer browser, and it's called Brave. This browser was created by an ex-Mozilla employee and somebody, the guy actually who uh, originally invented JavaScript. And it's meant to be out-of-the-box browser that's completely focused on privacy. So there's an article from Naked Security, and um, that's the Sophos blog. And I'm, I was going to read it, but we're kind of running along anyway, so I'll just kind of summarize here. He did a study of the six major web browsers. That includes Chrome, Firefox, Safari, which is Apple's browser, Brave, Edge, which is Microsoft's browser, and Yandex, which is more of a foreign uh, browser. I think it's either Chinese or Russian. And he examined basically from some very specific perspectives what kind of information is kept by the browser and communicated to the mothership, basically to the uh, to the company that owns the browser, and use that as sort of an indication of how private these browsers are out of the box. And it's that out of the box thing that's crucial because most of these browsers have a way of probably being just as private as Brave. But the thing that makes Brave different from a lot of these is that those settings are already turned on by default when you initially install the browser. And as we've just seen, as we just talked about, Firefox is moving that way too, and it's got a lot of privacy settings as well, that it's eventually turning those things on by default as well as they've tested them and, and rolled them out and make sure they work okay. They're making those the defaults as they go. So, you know, the study is interesting. Uh, and, you know, by the way, it comes out with Brave on top, and then Chrome, Firefox, and Safari are kind of like the next tier. And then at the very bottom was Edge and Yandex. Those were awful. But I really think it was a very narrow, uh, very narrow study. And while I uh, respect Brave, and we're going to talk about Brave here in a minute, as a perfectly viable option uh, to install, and one that I'm going to recommend you maybe give it a try, I personally believe that Firefox could be every bit as private as Brave, and possibly more so when you find out one thing that Brave is doing that's kind of different. So the first quick tip of the week, and that's for Firefox. If you're already on Firefox and you've already installed it, uh, you're going to want to turn on DNS over HTTPS. And... I know that sounds crazy. It's a word salad, but uh, all you need to do is go to preferences and there's a little search bar there at the top that'll make it quick. Just search on DOH and that should basically filter things down to a single setting and that's your network settings. Click on that settings button next to network settings. At the very bottom of that page, there's a checkbox for enable DNS over HTTPS. And if that's not checked, I would definitely go ahead and check that. Uh, and then you've got an option of selecting your DNS provider. Uh, the default, I think, is Cloudflare, and I am totally fine with Cloudflare. I really like them. We've interviewed their CTO several times. Uh, I think they're doing great work, and they have vowed um, very publicly uh, to not save any information on that DNS server. But if you know if you want to try a different one, there's another one there called Next DNS. I really know nothing about them, but supposedly they're very privacy-focused as well. And there's another option if you, and there, believe it or not, are a lot of public DNS servers that support this. You'd have to go find them. But if for some reason uh, you don't like either of those two options, you, you can find another and specify. But I would recommend you just go with Cloudflare and be done with it. So tip that was tip one. Tip two, you might want to just give Brave a chance. If, you know, Firefox is working well for you. Maybe you're fine already. But um, if you are still on Chrome and you haven't really made the move yet to Firefox, or maybe you tried Firefox once and didn't really like it, uh, then maybe you want to give uh, the Brave browser a try. Now, I've got some reservations uh, about about Brave. Um, it does for two reasons. First of all, it's, uh, the Brave browser is based on the Chromium browsing engine. And now that was created by Google, but that part of it, like the, it's like literally almost like the engine of a car. Like, so you could build multiple cars off the same engine and yet they'd be totally different cars and even perform differently depending on how it used that engine. 
But in this case, the web browsing engine is kind of the core of the browser. It's the thing that does the meat of the work when it's, you know, fetching web pages and showing them to you. And that part, Google has separated out from their Chrome browser and made free and open source. So anybody can view what's going on. It really probably has, shouldn't have any Google stuff uh, embedded in it, but if it does, you can remove it, which Brave did. So, but one of the down parts of this is basically every major browser on the planet, except Firefox, is all based on Chromium. So if there ever was a bug in the Chromium part itself, all these browsers would suddenly be vulnerable. So it's kind of nice to have a little heterogeneity in the ecosystem in case, you know, in case there's a compromise in one, you could use the other. So I'll briefly read a, a very short review from Restore Privacy, which is a great website, uh, and it reviews Brave this way. It says, Brave is a Chromium-based browser that is fast, secure, and privacy-focused by default with a built-in ad blocker. The main developer behind Brave is Brandon Icke, who formerly worked for Mozilla, and he was the inventor of JavaScript. For out-of-the-box privacy and security, Brave is a decent option. Brave is based on Chromium, with many privacy-abusing features and preferences stripped out. Brave does well with its default privacy settings and extra features, which include blocking ads and trackers by default, protecting against browser fingerprinting, built-in script blocker, and automatically updates HTTP to HTTPS. But here's the kicker, and the review says, Brave now has ads. Despite offering ad blocking in the browser, Brave officially launched its own ad program in April of 2019. The ads will be vetted by Brave, and there's a revenue sharing model for users and certain websites to get a percentage of the revenue. Some have called this move hypocritical for a privacy browser to roll out an advertising program, but it's also not too surprising. So that's the end of the article, and, and then it brings up one of the other problems I have with Brave. It's it's a double-edged sword. We So our web today is based on ads because nobody wants to pay for services. So the only way that these sites who need money to survive uh, is to put ads on their, uh, on their web pages. And those ads can be obnoxious, but they can also track you. And some of them can even infect you with malware if you're not careful. So what Brave has tried to do here is they've tried to create privacy-oriented ad system which goes back to basically what the old days, like newspaper ads, where there's a lot of ads in your newspaper too, and they could be annoying and obnoxious, but they don't track you. And that's supposedly what Brave is doing here. And they kind of formalized it with this really interesting thing called Brave Rewards. And <laughs> by going to websites with their approved ads on them, if you view those ads, and you don't have to, by the way, you could, you could not do this, but if you do and enable this, then you get what they call Basic Attention Tokens, or BAT. Bat coins. <laughs> it's got like bitcoins or some other cryptocurrency, I guess. But anyway, it's 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 tokens. It's money in a way, uh, and that money um, that is generated by you looking at that ad—that's what those advertisers are paying are paying for. When you agree to see these, you know, sanitized, privacy-respecting ads, the amount of time you see that ad, or maybe perhaps what website you see that ad on, generates a certain amount of these basic attention tokens. And that money, which basically translates to money, and, and Brave you know, shares that money with the advertisers that put up the ads. And it even allows you, in some senses, to choose who to give, uh, who to give that money to. If you want to support certain sites, then you might want to support the ads that are on that site. And you can do it on a site-by-site -site basis. So it gives you a little more control. Supposedly, it preserves your privacy. And it tries to straddle this whole line between you know, making money on advertising but not making money by tracking what you do. Give these guys credit for trying to, you know, try to find some sort of a compromise solution. So again, my, my preference honestly still is Firefox. I really like the browser. Uh, they're doing some great work. They're constantly rolling out new privacy features. 
Uh, and just adding a couple plugins to that uh, will probably get you to the same place that Brave gets you and still no ads uh, at all. And again, the plugins I usually recommend are uBlock Origin, and that's different than uBlock. Make sure you get uBlock Origin. That's a great uh, tracking and ad blocker. You can install HTTPS Everywhere. That's the EFF's plugin that makes sure that if you go to a website that's supposed, that supports both secure and non-secure, that it always goes to secure. And uh, the EFF's Privacy Badger. That's uh, another anti-tracking tool that uses you know, heuristics to, fill, to figure out who's tracking you and then stop it. And there are others, but those are the big ones. And then if you go and turn on that DNS over HTTPS, the DOH, I would bet that I would bet that Firefox is every bit as private as Brave. I think the, the what the article and the researcher was getting at is that out of the box with no changes, which I've talked about the tyranny of the default before. Most people don't change these things. You know that it's more private than the others, and I would believe that. But listeners to this podcast know better, and they can do better. I think by using Firefox and the recommendations that I've given. Wow, that was a long one. Thanks for hanging in there. We had a lot to cover today. Um, I've got a couple exciting tidbits for you. Uh, first of all, I've got a great interview uh, already in the bag for next week. It'll probably be another two-parter. We're talking with Haley Sukiyama from the EFF, and we're going to talk about the new California Consumer Privacy Act and why it affects a lot of us even outside of California. That's a great chat. You'll want to hear that one. So as always, subscribe if you haven't already. That way you don't miss anything. And if you haven't been there already to drop a review, I'd very much appreciate that. It really helps get the, the, the podcast noticed when it has more reviews, especially more good reviews. Uh, so I definitely appreciate you throwing a few stars on the, on, on the podcast if you can take the time to do that. And then uh, the other kind of interesting news, kind of exciting news, is that uh, I had the tables turned on me and I was interviewed by a local radio show. And it, while it is local, that's WNCU, and it is broadcast over local FM, you can also get it live streamed. So if for some reason you happen to be in the Raleigh area, you're one of my local listeners, uh, you can turn into 90.7 FM on next Sunday. That's March 8th on Sunday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. And you'll hear an interview between myself and uh, Dr. Brian Southwell, uh, who uh, hosts a program called The Measure of Everyday Life. And we talk a little bit about, of course, security and privacy, but also how I came to be in this, <laughs> kind of be in this area and why I got into this as I did, why I wrote the book. And of course, some uh, just kind of general questions about the impact of society, uh, the impact on society of these things. So it was a lot of fun and it was, you know, it was great to be on the other side of the mic for once. And, um, I, I really did enjoy it. So if you're interested, you can check that out next Sunday. And if, if you miss it next Sunday, you can also, there's a, I'll put the link in the show notes, but you can also listen to this anywhere on the planet at that same time. They've got a live stream. If you go to the WNCU.org website, there's a listen dash live link, uh, that is broadcasting over the internet. The same thing that they're broadcasting over the FM, uh, airwaves. And if you miss that, you can go straight to the podcast for The Measure of Everyday Life, and you'll see that episode show up probably a few days later. I think they said that on Wednesday. So I'll remind you this again in case you miss it uh, next week uh, where you can get the podcast, but uh, check it out. Two more quick things. Uh, there's one article I didn't even bother reading because it's just enormous, but it's really interesting. I haven't even read it all myself, but it's just fascinating. It's from the Washington Post uh, about the CIA. It's called The Intelligence Coup of the Century. And if you if you you miss this or you didn't see it on the nightly news, it's really just fascinating. For the last basically forty or fifty years, the CIA has secretly been running this uh, security company, selling its security products to many many probably governments and companies around the world. <laughs> it's claiming to be secure communications products when in fact the CIA could monitor everything that went through this product. 
And if nothing else, that it's just amazing that they got away with it uh, for this long. I, and I don't know why all of a sudden it's come out now, if it, the program's been discontinued or what. But, you know, it's great for those, con- for those conspiracy theorists, you know, about who you can trust. And then lastly, uh, as I've mentioned, the fourth edition of the book, my book, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons, will be uh, coming out probably later this fall. Uh, I'm starting work on it right now. And if you have any feedback, if you've got the book and you'd like to suggest something, or if maybe if you found a mistake in the book, uh, feel free to drop me a note. Send, uh, send that to feedback at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. All right, everybody, that was a long one today. Thanks for hanging in there. Uh, Again, we've got probably part one of the interview with Haley Tsukiyama from the EFF about the CCPA. That'll start next week. And as always, stay safe out there and don't get caught with the drawbridge down.